This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Does God exist, and how could we know? I find this topic a temptation. As a philosopher, I am tempted by these questions to spend time explaining rational demonstrations for the existence of God. And as a Thomistic philosopher, I'm especially tempted to defend these proofs as part of a general account of the role that they play in the overall thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. This is the kind of temptation that typically leads a Thomistic philosopher to make a presentation in three stages. First, and as a kind of preface, to sketch St. Thomas's theory of knowledge, especially anticipating skeptical concerns with some account of Aquinas's confident epistemological realism. Then, having thus framed knowledge of God as a special case of our capacity to know in general, to proceed to the second and main stage, addressing God's existence as something that can be demonstrated using rational argument. Here, in the thick of natural theology or metaphysics, we would see clear expositions of one or more of Aquinas's particular arguments demonstrating God's existence. Finally, and after these two properly philosophical steps, the first one epistemological, the second one metaphysical, in a third stage and as a kind of coda, to address the relation between faith and reason. We would hear about how, for Aquinas, philosophical argument can serve a Christian's apologetic or evangelistic purposes, proving some things about God, and also, given the Christian confidence in the harmony of faith and reason, defending against objection the distinctive mysteries of Christian faith, such as the doctrines of the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement and Resurrection, these doctrines which surpass but cannot contradict truths of reason. Perhaps some of you have even heard such a conventional Thomistic presentation. I have given it myself multiple times. It's a legitimate, textually justified introduction to Aquinas on knowledge of God's existence. But this evening, I am resisting temptation, and I will not give such a talk. What I want to avoid, generally, is the impression that Aquinas offers a kind of self-enclosed system which addresses questions so long as you adopt his system. Aquinas, as G.K. Chesterton observed, is a philosopher of common sense. And if we learn about his ideas in a way that does not fit with our everyday experience, with received wisdom and plain pre-theoretical understanding of things, we may very well be missing something. Specifically, I'm concerned that the conventional plan, sound as it is on its own terms, does not really address the situation of many who genuinely ask about God's existence. If you wonder whether God really exists, and if you wonder how it might be possible to know that, you could very well sit attentively through the kind of conventional lecture that I've described and feel as if you've heard a coherent account of someone else's opinions, an interesting piece of doxography or intellectual history, which nonetheless fails to address the existential question that provoked it. It seems to me that the conventional plan is better designed to serve as an academic exercise than to address more basic and authentic wonder, that wonder in the grips of which I expect at least some members of an audience for such a talk to be. The conventional plan I described also risks 
reinforcing some common misconceptions, myths, sometimes articulated, sometimes subconsciously assumed, which people often bring to discussions about Aquinas. Myth number one, that sometime after Aquinas, maybe thanks to the scientific revolution or Descartes or Hume or Kant, we entered a new epistemological paradigm, a different stage of human knowing to which Aquinas may or may not be able to provide a viable alternative. Myth number two, that Aquinas's approaching, approach to knowing God only works within his perhaps outdated, but at least now contested and relatively uncommon paradigm. And myth number three, that even if philosophy can intellectually address some abstract metaphysical questions about God, real spiritual questions can only be addressed separately as a matter of religious faith. Because I think these are myths, I plan to subvert the conventional form and indeed to subvert each of its three parts. So here is my plan for my talk. First, as to knowledge in general, I will discuss not the confident realism of Aquinas, but his epistemic humility. We might call this step Aquinas on why we can't know very much. I want to show especially the skeptics in the audience that it is hard to outdo Aquinas as far as skepticism is concerned. Second, on knowing the existence of God, instead of discussing philosophical proof and faith, I will talk about something more basic. We might call this part Aquinas's normal paths to God. I will argue that while Aquinas does in fact think God's existence is rationally demonstrable, for him, philosophical argument about God is of distinctively limited power and significance, and certainly not the only way in which people naturally, that is to say by their own lights and mundane powers and without the assistance of supernatural Christian faith, come to know the existence of God. Third, I will argue that despite this, Aquinas believes that philosophical argument about the existence and nature of God can be important, not primarily for its persuasive or apologetic power over others, but for what it does for the one formulating and reflecting on the argument and contemplating its conclusion. Proofs for God's existence help us to acquire and inspire us to purify our concepts of God. We could call this part Aquinas on cultivating wonder. I will argue that for Aquinas, addressing a genuine intellectual wonder about God's existence and nature strengthens the mind's capacity to contemplate and seek union with God. Before I get to those three parts, in one additional way, I will subvert the conventional lecture on Aquinas's proofs for God's existence. It is standard to emphasize how much Aquinas is indebted to Aristotle. I will begin by drawing on some lessons from Plato. So here is part one of the talk, a platonic prelude. Plato provides some extended arguments about the existence and nature of gods in book 10 of his longest work, The Laws. He gives arguments that the gods or God exist, that they are good and provident and care about human affairs, and that the gods are not subject to human manipulation or control, but worthy of our honor and devotion. The arguments for the existence of God or the gods are of the sort that, of, that we would call arguments for a first cause, an ultimate source of nature, of change, of intelligibility, 
of order. It would be interesting to map these arguments onto Aquinas' famous five ways. These are the arguments that many of you uh, might have heard of from Aquinas. Classic arguments from the Summa Theologiae that are also all different versions of inference from more immediately local and familiar effects to a more remote and ultimate cause. But what I want to do is highlight the context in which Plato offers his arguments. The laws, like the more well-known Republic, involves a long conversation about founding a just city. The discussion about the gods in Book 10 of the Laws is situated much like the discussion in Books 7 and 8 of the Republic about the form of the good. You might recall by means of the analogy of the sun and the extended uh, cave allegory, Plato uh, in the, the Republic and similarly in the Laws addresses the need for citizens, especially for those with most authority in the city, to have as pure and direct an understanding of the true nature of reality, including the ultimate source of all virtue. Plato's characters in the laws agree that abstract theological inquiry is not necessary for most citizens who can come to know what they need to know about the gods without any difficult arguments in philosophy. How? For some, it is enough to infer from the wonder of heavenly bodies and the orderliness of seasons, or to defer to and acquire the pious practices and beliefs of the community. In fact, a habit of piety seems enough to preserve many in knowing what they need to know about the divine. But Plato's city is threatened by impiety, which according to the argument of Book 10, needs to be guarded against by theological argument, careful and persuasive enough to correct the false theological opinions spread through misleading stories, myths, and habits. According to the laws, the most dangerous threat to piety in the city is the idea that pious theological beliefs are not our true response to reality, but some mere human invention. Religious belief on this view is constructed by humans for merely human purposes, and the notion of God has its cause and source in human imagination. For Plato, this false religious constructivism is a dangerous and socially constructed myth caused by and inculcating impiety. Although, for most people, there are other means of persuasion of theological truth, for the most impious souls attached to the myth of religious constructivism, only careful philosophical argument, eventually reaching the truth about divinity, can persuade overturning the false and impious view that human beings are the origin of divinity in favor of the true and pious belief that we are dependent on a divine power existing prior to and independent of us. Again, the bulk of Book 10 thus consists in articulating the refutation of impious beliefs with philosophical proofs about the existence and nature of the divine. So obviously, two things that Plato seems to try to teach us in Book 10 are, one, that a divine power exists, is good and provident over the universe, and cares for us and deserves our worship, and two, that it is possible to know this by means of rigorous rational argument. For present purposes, there are four other lessons of Laws Book 10 that I want to highlight. First, the philosophical arguments that prove things about God are difficult and take some degree of intellectual advancement and care. The arguments are decisive, 
but to follow them, one must have patience, training, and leisure for speculative thought. Two, the philosophical arguments about divinity are mainly necessary for moral, spiritual, or political purposes. The arguments are correctives of socially dangerous and impious views about the gods, and especially of false atheistic views that try to account for the origin of religious belief and make man the measure of all things. Third, for most people, there are more common and natural ways to know theological truth. In fact, Plato describes three ways. Thanks to our animal nature, including sensation and imagination, we can know about the gods from stories or myth and a direct and pre-theoretical experience of the cosmos. Thanks to our political nature and the fact of our habituation into belief as part of a general formation in and by a larger social context, we can know about God from parents and custom and society and law. And finally, thanks to our moral nature and the fact that our beliefs are shaped by our own choices, we can learn about God from acquiring a basic habit of decency and piety. A fourth lesson from the laws, properly philosophical knowledge about the divine should serve those other more natural ways of knowing God, integrating and fulfilling our nature and helping to order the whole soul towards its right end. Now, Aquinas never read Plato's laws. It was not available to medieval Latin authors. But as we will see, each of these elements can be found in Aquinas' reflections on knowledge of God. So here's the second main part of the talk. Aquinas' principled skepticism, or why we can't know things. This sounds odd, because for a variety of good historical reasons, what interpreters have tended to emphasize about Aquinas is how he helps secure the possibility of knowledge. It is common to sketch the history of modern philosophy as beginning, say, with Descartes' methodological skepticism and progressing through a series of attempts to overcome or it, circumvent it with rationalism, empiricism, or romanticism, or phenomenology, or what have you. Pick your strategy. In this context, Aquinas is presented as providing an answer to the problem of knowledge, usually framed in terms of the notion of the world as constituted and organized by intelligible actualizing principles, these are forms, and the notion of the human soul as especially fit to grasp and receive those forms. And that view of the soul receiving forms is often described as Aquinas's direct realism. The word form should not distract us from the basic common sense idea that knowledge at its most proper is the grasp of the causes of something. Knowledge is an explanation or a full account. And that if things in the world have causes making them to be what they are, we can know those things to the extent that those causes are somehow grasped by or received into our cognition. And the flip side of Aquinas's conception of the possibility of cognition, described in terms of the reception of forms, is that there are many different modes of form. And as he says, the forms are received according to the mode of being of the receiver. While it is appropriate to describe Aquinas as a defender of the possibility of knowledge, what is sometimes lost is that the mode of the human mind receiving the various modes of actualizing powers in the world faces a number of intrinsic obstacles and limits. There are different kinds of objects that we might want to know about the constitution of the human mind is such that it is not always possible or easy to access or receive the actualizing powers of other things. And even when it is possible, that knowledge might be attained only in a limited way and only with a great deal of help. 
knowledge is a common term then for something that is realized in different ways. It is domain specific. Yves Simone appropriately speaks of St. Thomas Aquinas as an epistemological pluralist. In the broadest sense, we can even count sensation as a mode of knowing or cognizing for particular physical things. I see my cat, Sophie, on the windowsill. By contrast, I intellectually grasp abstracted generalizations about those sensible things. For instance, that Sophie is a cat or that cats are mammals. It is only about intelligible objects, not sensible objects, that we can have properly scientific knowledge with certainty and demonstrability. But even in discussing proper demonstrative knowledge, we accept that there are levels of certitude in the sciences because there are different kinds of causes in the things we want to know. And these can be more or less dependent on other causes and more or less abstractable from the things that they inform. And beyond the fact that there are levels of certainty within the sciences, there are whole domains for which there can be no properly scientific knowledge at all. Domains that we care about, for instance, wherever there is no essential or necessary cause to be known, but an element of randomness or chance, which Aquinas describes as involving fortune. Here, there cannot be scientific knowledge in the strictest sense. And this has serious consequences for those who would try to use science to predict chance events. Another realm of contingency is human affairs. Human action is never entirely predictable, even to the agent before choosing the action. And Aquinas, again following Aristotle, warns against seeking certainty in a science of human activity. In general, says Aquinas, here's a quote, the method of manifesting truth in any science ought to be suitable to the subject matter of that science. Certitude cannot be found, nor should it be sought, in the same degree in all discussions where we reason about anything. Aquinas finishes this observation with a general remark about taking care not to expect unreasonable degrees of certainty and to be aware of the different modes of reasoning appropriate to different subjects. He says, the educated man ought not to look for greater nor be satisfied with less certitude than is appropriate to the subject under discussion. It seems an equal fault to allow a mathematician to use rhetorical arguments and to demand from a rhetorician conclusive demonstrations such as a mathematician should give. Mistakes happen because the method appropriate to the matter is not considered. Mathematics is concerned with matter in which perfect certitude can be found. Rhetoric, however, he concludes, deals with political matter where there is a multiplicity of variation a lot of diversity. Notably, this passage treats rhetoric as an appropriate mode of inquiry, a path to awareness of truth in practical matters, ethics and politics. Along with rhetoric, Aquinas also treats dialectical reasoning, indirect, probable, investigative, as opposed to systematic, demonstrative, and certain, as well as poetry as appropriate modes of inquiry and persuasion for some domains. These non-scientific modes of reasoning do not establish strict knowledge, but by appealing to imagination and appetite, they form beliefs, opinions, and even attractions and prejudices that are rightly oriented and true. For the poet's task, says Aquinas, is to lead us to something virtuous by some excellent description. For Aquinas, the search for highest or first principles, that is metaphysics or natural theology, 
is at once most certain, but also the most difficult. The causes are most necessary and most few, but they are also the most removed from what is familiar to us, most removed from our embodied experience. In a political work on kingship, Aquinas describes the appropriateness of much human knowledge being dependent on our conditions as physical and social beings. All other animals are able to discern by inborn skill, he says, what is useful and what is injurious, even as the sheep naturally regards the wolf as his enemy. Some animals also recognize by natural skill certain medicinal herbs and other things necessary for their life. Man, on the contrary, has a natural knowledge of the things which are essential for his life only in a general fashion, inasmuch as he is able to attain knowledge of the particular things necessary for human life by reasoning from natural principles. But it is not possible, he continues, for one man to arrive at a knowledge of all these things by his own individual reason. It is therefore necessary for man to live in a multitude, or we might say in a community, so that each one may assist his fellows and different men may be occupied in seeking by their reason to make different discoveries, one, for example, in medicine, one in this, and another in that. So to summarize, Aquinas' understanding of human knowledge in general does affirm that knowledge is possible, but it also provides principled reasons, an account of the causes why, knowledge is limited. Specifically, some domains, by their nature, do not admit of any knowledge at all. Some domains, by their nature, only admit of knowledge in a very limited or attenuated way. Even in those domains where knowledge is possible, it may be very difficult and error prone. And finally, because, our nature, because of our nature as limited embodied social animals, some truths may reach our intellectual awareness through means other than rational argument, including but not limited to instinct, imagination, and socialization. So now I'm to the third part of the lecture, Aquinas and the normal ways of knowing God. Aquinas does think that there is such a thing as theological science and that truths about God can be known with certainty. And yet commonly when introducing this science, he warns us of its difficulty and makes clear that strictly speaking, we cannot know God. That is to say the divine nature is such as not to be something that a human intellect is fit to receive it. That there are certain truths, he says, about God that totally surpass man's ability appears with the greatest evidence. It is necessary that the way in which we understand the substance of a thing determines the way in which we know what belongs to it. The human intellect is not able to reach a comprehension of the divine substance through its natural power. Despite this, Aquinas believes that it is possible for human beings to know things about God through rational inquiry, but he typically warns about the possibility of error and uncertainty. Here again, from the Summa Contra Gentiles, he summarizes some of the sources of error in a science of God. The investigation of the human reason, for the most part, has falsity present in it, he says, partly due to the weakness of our intellect in judgment and partly due to the admixture of images. And even with respect to what can be demonstrated, he says, there sometimes is mingled something that is false, something which people believe to be demonstrated, but which is rather asserted on the basis of some probable or sophistical, that is fallacious, argument. In other words, even those 
who are sincerely trying to make rational arguments about God can fall prone to the weakness of the human intellect. They can be misled by imagination, which always accompanies but can cloud proper thought, and they can conflate proper proofs with fallacious or merely probable reasoning. Now in context, Aquinas says something like this, as an argument, a fittingness argument, which is probable, not demonstrable, for the need for divine revelation. Since we can't achieve knowledge of God on our own, we need God to help us. Aquinas makes a similar argument in the Summa Theologiae, where he lists three ways in which philosophical knowledge of God is inadequate for us on its own and is appropriately supplemented by revealed knowledge. Even as regard those truths about God which human reason could have discovered, he says, it was necessary that man should be taught by a divine revelation because the truth about God such as reason could discover would only be known by a few and that after a long time and with the admixture of many errors. It was therefore necessary that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be a sacred science learned through revelation. So these are defenses of a place for Christian theology as a revealed science, sacra doctrina, accessible by faith. They are invitations, especially for those most eager to know by argument, to docility and openness to the source of truth, which may reveal itself if we are willing to trust it. Another passage in defense of prophecy also addresses the appropriateness of receiving help in knowing God. Commenting on the Psalms, Aquinas notes, that David shows forth the matter of prophecy when he says the uncertain and hidden things. Prophecy is about these things, namely the uncertain and hidden things that are comprehended through your God's wisdom. In us, something is unknown in a twofold way, which nevertheless is known to God. Something is unknown to us either on account of its defect or on account of some excess. On account of defect, something is unknown to us that reaches to the future because it does not yet have the truth determined. On account of excess, it is unknown to us the divine substance and that which exceeds our capacity. Nevertheless, both had been revealed to David through the spirit of prophecy, and these things lie concealed in the wisdom of God, as if he were saying, it is allowed that they be hidden from us, yet they are comprehended by your wisdom. Knowing that Aquinas is a Christian theologian, we are not surprised that he would recommend a chastened view of reason to make space for Christian faith. But Aquinas also thinks that apart from faith and apart from speculative proof, it is possible to attain some awareness of and knowledge about God. First, he thinks that there is a way in which awareness of God's existence comes to us naturally. Here's a passage from the Summa Theologiae. To know that God exists in a general and confused way is implanted in us by nature, inasmuch as God is man's beatitude or fulfillment or happiness. For man naturally desires happiness, and what is naturally desired by man must be naturally known to him. This, however, is not to know absolutely that God exists, just as to know that someone is approaching is not the same as to know that a particular person, Peter, is approaching, even though it is Peter who is approaching. For there are... For many there are who imagine that man's perfect good, which is happiness, consists in riches and others in pleasure and others in something else. Right? So we have this vague notion that we're oriented towards something that will fulfill us, even if we don't know what that is. 
Aquinas describes this as a general confused kind of knowledge of God's existence implanted in us by nature, by which God is at least vaguely known as our last end, the ultimate final cause, that for the sake of which we choose things, happiness. The notion is not extensively developed in Aquinas, but when he treats it, he sometimes describes this way of knowing God as knowledge that is affective, that is appealing to our affections, rooted in an inclination or orientation of the will, as opposed to speculative, which is more properly rooted in the intellect. For instance, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he explains how John 17.25, the world has not known you, is consistent with Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature his eternal power and deity has been clearly perceived from the things that have been made. Aquinas addresses that by applying the distinction between affective and speculative knowledge. This affective knowing is a form of knowing, but it is not scientific. Given our social nature, it is also appropriate that this natural affective knowledge be influenced not only by our direct experience, but by our relationships with others. So a second normal mode of coming to know God is through culture. Undoubtedly, society forms us, and we have also seen that Aquinas grasps that our intellectual commitments are subject to forms of persuasion short of demonstrative proof. The disciplines of dialectical inquiry, rhetoric, and poetics are concerned with assent based on inconclusive but nonetheless convincing modes of persuasion, probabilistic argument, appeals to character, authority, and imagination, Aquinas understood that many people's beliefs about God are formed in a social environment other than in the pews or the seats of a philosophy class. While later thinkers more explicitly develop accounts of the rationality of tradition and the wisdom encoded in culture, Aristotle and Plato also showed a deference to custom and the role of parents and common opinion in shaping belief. While these can be the means of God communicating the gift of faith, on the natural level, they can also be means by which we, as social beings, come to know about the existence and nature of God. Nor would Aquinas have any reason to dismiss, in their proper place, arguments that essentially rest on prudential judgments about risk management, either in the existential or spiritual mode of Blaise Pascal, it seems that our immortal happiness is at stake and we have nothing to lose by believing, nor in the social pragmatist mode of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, something as durable as religious belief must encode valuable information for human flourishing. Of course, none of these arguments are conclusive, and cultural influences on our natural or affective knowledge of God can just as well be harmful as helpful, especially when, for whatever reason, that vague longing for happiness is clouded by a will misdirected to vicious and sinful objects. Indeed, Aquinas' occasional remarks about affective knowledge of God typically come in discussions about sin and vice. The implication is that a third normal mode of learning about God is by cultivation of virtue. Thus, Aquinas, addressing the vice of putting God to the test, that is effectively denying his goodness, clarifies the ways one can seek confirmation of God's goodness. One way is by speculative philosophical argument, but the other is, he says, affective or experiential, by which a man experiences in himself the taste of God's sweetness and a taking pleasure 
in God's will. In defense of experiential knowledge, Aquinas even cites here the Christian Neoplatonist, Pseudo-Dionysius, from the divine names. He learned divine things through experience of them. Still later in the Summa, Aquinas describes how the vice of pride disorients our awareness of reality, while humility gives us a kind of wisdom. Pride indirectly keeps the mind from being open to truth intellectually or speculatively, since it refuses subjection to an ultimate cause. But pride directly impedes our affective knowledge of truth, because the proud, he says, through delighting in their own excellence, disdain the excellence of truth. And here he cites St. Gregory, the proud, although certain hidden truths be conveyed to their understanding, cannot realize their sweetness. And even if they know of them speculatively, they cannot relish them effectively. Aquinas also discusses other vices that corrupt our natural reason, especially lust, which impedes contemplation, crowding out the refined pleasures of intellect with the baser pleasures of the body. Related to pride and lust, another distinctive vice clouds our knowledge of God, intellectual intemperance or curiositas, a disorder in our desire for knowledge. Aquinas cites Augustine on how disordered desire for knowledge of creatures can lead one astray from God, and he cites Sirach on how misplaced desire to know about God beyond one's power can lead one astray. The virtue of rightly ordered intellectual appetite, studiositas, is a mean, a matter of seeking the right things in the right way, to the right degree, in a manner appropriate to one's circumstances. So the moral virtues of humility, chastity, and studiositas, all parts of temperance, or rightly ordered desire, help one to be mindful of God, to know God, not philosophically, but we might say automatically or intuitively, by inclination. Finally, we should mention another virtue as also helpful, justice specifically the part of justice that Aquinas calls religion, religio, a habit of right service to God rooted in a recognition of our dependence on forces beyond our control, essentially what Plato addressed under the notion of piety. We are assembling now some ways in which, in a Thomistic account, we can attain knowledge of God, or let us say awareness of God's existence, power, and goodness, before and without explicit philosophical proof and without the grace of Christian faith. I have been calling them normal paths to God as more common but less exact and certain than knowing about God by the work of philosophical argument or the gift of supernatural faith. And I have ignored altogether even higher forms of supernatural inspired knowledge of God, including mystical experience. So to summarize, there is a kind of built-in knowledge in us by our very nature's inclination to God. We can learn about God from deference to other wise people, respect for the authority of established social practices, practical reflection and common sense, and participation in the acts of a God-fearing community. And finally, we are better able to grasp God through moral formation, temperance, courage, and justice orient us to wisdom. So just as we saw with Plato, 
For Aquinas, our nature as organisms, as social beings, and as moral agents gives us a chance to know God in a pre-theoretical way. But where in Plato's laws, the prevalence of social and moral corruption, general impiety, placed a large and seemingly unsustainable burden on philosophy to purify and defend knowledge of God. For Aquinas, God himself has condescended to assist us, to heal us personally and socially, through the gift of his grace, through faith. In the normal course of things, the natural or affective knowledge of God is strengthened by faith in divinely revealed truth. Philosophy can and does help, but even as Plato recognized, philosophy is difficult, prone to error, and undemocratic, even when successful. At the beginning, I said I aimed to speak to those who don't simply want to hear about Aquinas's philosophical system or opinions, but who genuinely wonder whether God really exists. At this point, we can see that Aquinas can address this on several levels. If you wonder and are open to God's existence, that wonder is itself a sign and a prompting, a stirring of your effective knowledge. Is there further evidence? Plato and Aquinas would both recommend you listen to traditional wisdom and not dismiss human sources of teaching about divine things. Indeed, both would warn you to be wary of misleading theories or myths or ideologies about the merely human origin of religious belief. And given human nature, they would both advise that we avoid intemperate and unjust action, lust, pride, disordered attention, and commit to cultivating virtue. Should we study proofs about God's existence? Despite their confidence in the proofs, both Plato and Aquinas would warn that this may not be possible nor helpful without taking the other advice first. Aquinas, Plato, and any good philosopher should offer proofs for the existence of God, but a very perceptive philosopher should also offer some account of human psychology that explains why even highly intelligent people do not always understand or accept those proofs, especially if they remain otherwise under the influence of misleading cultural forces or their own disordered habits. So part four, contemplation, philosophy as purifying spiritual discipline. We are now at the final section, which I earlier called Aquinas on cultivating wonder. Up to this point, I have mentioned, but not articulated, Aquinas's philosophical demonstrations for the existence of God, focusing instead on how one who wonders about the existence of God can come to know his existence short of philosophical demonstration by awareness of natural inclinations, persuasion by wise authorities, respect for tradition, and moral uprightness. Aquinas' philosophical proofs for the existence of God include the famous five ways, which are relatively accessible, as well as a proof in his treatise on being an essence, which is more challenging, but like the others, is still a form of argument from familiar effects to an ultimate cause. These are sound and conclusive proofs, leading to a speculative knowledge of God's existence that is more certain, more properly scientific, than more, more normal modes I have so far described. An obvious benefit of these proofs for those who follow them is their certainty that they inspire confidence in God's existence. A less obvious benefit, however, and the one I want to focus on, is their capacity to inspire wonder. 
Recall that for Aquinas, we technically cannot know God's nature as not just another intelligible thing, but the pure source of intelligibility itself. It exceeds our reason. As Aquinas says, expanding on a remark from Aristotle, our soul's intellectual power is related to immaterial things, which are by nature the most knowable of all, as the eyes of owls are to the light of day, which they cannot see because their powers of vision is weak, although they do see dimly lighted things. As from what it illuminates even dimly, we can see indirectly that the sun is there and learn more about it and even appreciate with greater understanding its blinding brilliance. So too, we can learn about the divine nature and attain a greater and greater understanding of why it exceeds our comprehension by thinking toward it from what is more intellectually accessible to us. This begins with a better understanding of what kind of thing we must be thinking about when we even try to think about God. And this is a chief benefit of Aquinas's proofs. The conclusions of Aquinas's proofs give us a variety of clear characterizations of God. From the five ways, we learn to conceive of God as the first mover, not subject to any motion, as the first agent or efficient cause, as an essentially necessary being, as the most perfect being, or as an original governing intelligence. The conclusion of the proof from on being and essence invites us to conceive of God as lacking any composition, division, or complication, that in which the act of being is identical with what it is. To follow the proofs, one may begin with a conception of God that will be modified or clarified in the process of reaching and reflecting on the proof's conclusion. But one does not have to start a proof with any concept of God at all. The process of following the reasoning may itself elicit, for the first time, a sense of what one could mean by God. In themselves, each of the proofs are rather modest. The proof of a first mover, for instance, does not prove, but it provides the basis for separate arguments proving that there is one God, that God is immaterial and eternal, that God is good or alive or wise and just. Right? All it does is prove that there is a first mover. Moreover, the proofs help to show how all of these truths could be related to and follow from a conception of God, from conceptions of God that are much less familiar and far more speculative. For instance, that God is pure actuality or that God is absolute simplicity. The proofs then have the effect of intellectually purifying our conception of God. But this, is also, this also means that they can spiritually purify our orientation to seek him. While a very basic wonder prompts us to pursue arguments providing certainty that God is, the conclusions of those arguments themselves inspire further wonder about the God those conclusions describe. If we prove that there is a first mover, how wondrous is it to think that there is something that can generate change without undergoing any change in itself? If there is an ultimate end or purpose, how wondrous is it that there is something that does not merely have goodness, but is goodness itself? If there is a first actualizer of being, how wondrous that something could have no other nature than its own eternal actualizing. In this way, the scientific arguments about God and God's nature serve not primarily to persuade others, though they can do that, but to purify and strengthen the soul 
for further contemplation in deeper wonder. So in conclusion, there is a common cultural myth, sometimes backed up with the alleged authority of philosophical history, that the existence of God is not something that can be known, or that if it can be known, it can be known only by an act of religious assent of faith, which is separate from and somehow less than what we usually mean by knowledge. Against the background of this assumption, Aquinas is presented as holding that religious faith, properly conceived, is not merely a personal opinion or belief, but a kind of knowledge, and that the existence of God can be known with rational certainty through properly philosophical demonstrations. I have sought to show that Aquinas presents an even starker response to our common cultural myth. Proofs for the existence of God are not the only natural path to a genuine awareness of God's existence. The proofs may provide more certainty for those who are prepared to follow them, but they also, and more importantly, elicit greater wonder. Their conclusions articulate something about the unfathomable transcendence of God and, for those with the gift of Christian faith, they also deepen our appreciation for the miracle of the incarnation and the mysteries revealed about the divine nature in Christ. Knowledge of God is something that we can share in, but it is only perfectly possessed by God. Indeed, such knowledge as we can have from God is on loan from him. Here is Aquinas on genuine knowledge or science of God from his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. Such a science, which is about God and first causes, either God alone has, or if not he alone, at least he has it in the highest degree. Indeed, he alone has it in a perfectly comprehensive way, and he has it in the highest degree inasmuch as it, also, as it is also had by men in their own way, although it is not had by them as a human possession, but as something borrowed from him. In philosophical terms, there are logically sound proofs which provide us with speculative certainty of God's existence. In human terms, these proofs are gifts intended to strengthen us and confirm us in knowing something also knowable in other ways, purifying our minds, and thereby inspiring us to participate in a higher and more perfect way in the divine life of our generous creator. Thank you very much.